0: I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Luke Van Loon. Dr. Van Loon is a professor of the Physiology of Exercise and Nutrition in the Department of Human Biology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, and his lab studies exercise physiology and nutrition. They look at things like skeletal muscle metabolism, the skeletal muscle adaptive response to exercise, the impact of nutrition and exercise interventions on muscle metabolism in health and disease, and a lot of stuff related to that. So sports nutrition, aging, uh, resistance versus endurance, exercise, all that. Stuff And we talked about exercise science, broadly speaking. We spent some time early on talking about different macronutrients and how how the body uses them for energy, so fats versus carbohydrates versus protein. We spent a good amount of time talking about protein in different ways, animal versus plant proteins, and how the digestibility and absorption of those proteins varies depending on the food source you're getting the protein from. We talked about essential and non-essential amino acids and how the individual amino acids that we consume are not just the building blocks of protein. But oftentimes they serve as important uh, signaling molecules that tell the body and tell our cells to turn on or turn off different pathways that are relevant for building muscle and different physiological changes. We talked about protein synthesis, um, when that happens, how it varies across sleep and wake cycles, how it varies across the lifespan as we age. We talked about how protein synthesis responds not just to the amount of protein and the diet that we're consuming, but also the type of exercise that we engage in and how those things interact we talked about weight loss and how the macronutrient composition of your diet can affect how hungry or how full you feel throughout the day and how that might impact your ability to actually lose weight. And we talked about things like exercise recovery, um, what types of nutrition are optimal for recovery, uh, why your muscles feel sore. We talked about the different types of muscle fibers, type one and type two fibers, and how they relate to endurance versus resistance training and how different types of exercise regimes can uh, affect each of those fibers differently. So if you're interested in diet, nutrition, exercise, and recovery, exercise science, broadly speaking, this will be a fascinating episode. I learned a lot of really practical, actionable stuff in terms of how my body will likely respond to uh, changes I make in my diet and the types of exercise and physical activity I'm actually engaged in. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on Mind & Matter, please like, share, and subscribe. The best way to help the show grow is to share your favorite episodes with family or friends. You can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com That newsletter will give you updates about the podcast, such as upcoming guests, interesting research that I'm looking at that's coming out that's related to the subjects that I cover on the show, and some other interesting content that's science-related that you'll like if you like what I cover on the podcast. That sub. Tech also has my writing. I often write about subjects that are similar to the ones that I cover on the podcast, and a lot of times I integrate what I've learned across various episodes into articles about various subjects. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy to use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising. And it syncs with other devices like the Apple watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code mind M I N D in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, Here's my conversation with Dr. Luke Van Loon. Thanks for having me. Can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what your lab studies?
1: Yeah, so what I, I have a chair in physiology of exercise and nutrition. Um, I basically supervise a group of researchers, about 30 people here at Maastricht University Medical Center. Um, We study basically the interaction between physical activity and exercise and nutrition. And we do this um, in an attempt to improve performance, uh, for example, in athletes, but all the way down to basically the impact of lack of physical activity and lack of sufficient nutrition in intensive care unit patients and everything in between. So anywhere where we can actually affect uh, the interplay between nutrition and exercise.
0: And um, normally when we talk about nutrition, you know, one of the big things people talk about are the major uh, macronutrients, fats, carbohydrates, proteins. Can you give people just a very basic overview of what those things are and how the body utilizes each type of macronutrient for energy?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting from my career, I basically started with the interaction between carbohydrate and fat metabolism and my lab now mainly revolves around protein metabolism, so uh, I have experienced some of the work in, in in the different fields. So you have three basic macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, and protein. Uh, the carbohydrates and the fats are basically substrates for energy provision, so uh, fuels basically – uh, there's one big difference between the fuels, carbohydrates, and fats. Uh, fat basically gives you a lot of energy per gram, almost twice as much as carbohydrates. Um, and um, with fats, you can actually perform uh, lower-intensity exercise for a prolonged uh, time, duration. And that's a nice thing, and it also makes it very efficient fuel source because you can actually store a lot of energy in the form of uh, of fat, that's why most of our energy stored in our body is stored as fat, because if we would store it as carbohydrates, we would basically become twice as heavy. Um, but the carbohydrates are an important fuel source because you can actually sustain high-intensity exercise with a carbohydrate uh, oxidation. And that is because um, with high-intensity exercise, it's easier to get the energy that is actually inside the carbohydrates get them out faster. So in uh, people that don't have a nutritional or biological background, I always explain it that fat is like diesel and carbohydrates are like kerosene. Mm. So your body always uses a combination of the two to mix and match in order to have the optimal performance. And that's also one of the reasons why you always hear about athletes taking carbohydrate drinks and stuff like that, because your total storage of carbohydrates is much smaller than fat. And that's why in some cases, uh, carbohydrate supplementation helps people perform optimally during higher intensity exercise over a more prolonged period of time. That's in short, in a nutshell, the basics of carbohydrates and fat. And these interact, of course. Um, Protein uh, can be used as a substrate for energy provision, but it's, it's not very efficient on that. And the body doesn't really do it. Uh, protein uh, is basically a macronutrient that is composed of long strands of uh, of amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. And these amino acids are being used by the body to build proteins. And basically you are composed of proteins. So your muscle, uh, but, but also part of your bone and your, your organs, it's all made of proteins. And so we need protein in order to maintain our tissues, both health and integrity.
0: And... You know, in terms of fats, there's saturated and unsaturated fats. Is there a difference between them in terms of, you know, how much ATP can be used, uh, can be made if you have one type versus the other? Whether or not one is sort of better for giving you energy for exercise or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, for 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 fats, it's it all depends on, of course, the, the the size of the chain. You have short chain fatty acids. You have long chain fatty acids. You have t- so so you have uh, all kinds of fats so that that all uh, differs between the different fats and uh, it's not necessarily a a discussion about saturated or unsaturated fatty acids that has much more to do with of course health benefits of that and it's uh, far beyond uh, my uh, level of expertise. Got it and then in
0: terms of you know protein protein is used it can be used for energy but it's primarily used you know to make to make the proteins of the body that do stuff and i know that um So so proteins are made out of amino acids, and I know that there's essential and non-essential amino acids, and that can be important um, when it comes to thinking about diet. Can you just give people a basic overview of essential versus non-essential amino acids? Yeah,
1: I think that's, I'm always confusing my students with with this. So so in general, uh, proteins are not being used as a substrate, exactly what you say. But of course, there are situations where you do. Uh, look at people that are in a concentration camp, for example, or doing a hunger strike, uh, or a severe uh, deprivation, or anything. You actually see that they start burning their muscle. So you can actually just just use a substrate, as a protein, as a substrate, but on the normal fat conditions, basically it only contributes very little to energy provision. Now proteins exist uh, in, in in basically conglomerates of uh, of uh, amino acids as the a- building blocks of proteins, and you have uh, about 20 different amino acids, and some are essential amino acids or named essential amino acids, and others are named non-essential amino acids. The essential amino acids are being called this because the body can't uh, synthesize these amino acids themselves. Uh, The non-essential amino acids are amino acids that can be produced by the body often through the conversion of essential amino acids. Um, And so, therefore, theoretically, they are non-essential. However, in my perspective, um, I think the non-essential amino amino acids are still essential in your diet. Uh, Of course, that is always confusing the students because then I'm actually telling that the non-essential amino acids are essential. Uh, But it only refers to the capacity of the body to endogenously synthesize them.
0: I see. So, so essential amino acids—you absolutely have to get them from diet because your body can't make them at all. Um, the non-essential ones, uh, your body can make, um, but it's still important—very, very, very important—to get them in the diet as well. And I'm sure we'll come to that. Yep. Now, in terms of carbohydrates, like I was, you know, they are sort of the the fast energy source, I guess we could say, and. I was always taught as a kid, you know, playing sports and stuff that, you know, my meal before, you know, my, the, the, the night before a game or something, or my meal before the game should be, you know, pasta or something that's got a lot of carbs. Is that generally good advice? Um, when you're doing exercise, are carbs going to be the best thing to help fuel the, the high intensity exercise you're going to do? Does it matter if it's, you know, one type of exercise or the other and, and what's going on there?
1: Yeah, you said that this would be uh, like a a ninety-minute discussion, but it could actually become a multi-day discussion. (laughs) Um, But so, what you need to understand is that you have about um, so on the total body, there might be around um, yeah, let's let's say uh, hundred in the liver, uh, another three hundred fifty, like maybe five hundred grams of carbohydrate uh, in the body. With that amount, you could sustain exercise on a high intensity level for uh, about 60 minutes if you're, uh, if you're a good athlete. So any exercise that is of a moderate to a high intensity lasting more than 60 minutes might deplete your glycogen stores and glycogen is stored in the liver and also in your muscle. And so um, in the muscle, 350 to up to 700 grams, in the liver, about 100 grams. So in general, about 500 or 600, 700 uh, grams, depending on how, you, what kind of diet you have, what your training status is, and the amount of muscle that you have, of course. But in about 60 minutes on a moderate to high-intensity exercise, you can actually deplete your glycogen, and then the body is not able to maintain the high-intensity For longer, and then you have to tone down uh, your intensity. So slow down, or you might actually end up uh, with basically hitting the wall, as they say. So, this depends, of course, in the absolute intensity that you perform with, because if somebody is very inactive and doesn't burn a lot of energy, then 60 minutes he will take a lot more before he gets through his glycogen stores or her glycogen stores. For an athlete, that could be 60 minutes. So if your exercise is more than 60 to 90 minutes of a moderate to high intensity exercise, it's possible that your performance is limited by the availability of carbohydrates that are stored in your body. In that case, you can actually do two things to prevent depletion of your glycogen stores by either, Um, storing up, fueling up. So ensure that your tanks are full with carbohydrates uh, and or uh, provide additional carbohydrates during the physical activity. Now, what a lot of endurance athletes do several days before an important uh, competition where the competition or the type of exercise might deplete your glycogen stores, they start uh, fueling up with a lot of carbohydrates. So they use basically uh, a high-carbohydrate diet And they actually uh, increase the amount of carbohydrates in their diet on a daily basis, up to the level that almost from fifty to nearly seventy percent of their energy in their diet is provided by carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. They titrate down their their training uh, their training uh, amounts in the first few days before exercise, and that loads up your tank so you have a maximum amount of glycogen in your your muscle then in the morning like 2 hours before the competition they typically have a small uh, a small meal more a small carbohydrate rich meal which also loads up the liver the last part of the liver because overnight the liver has been giving some of the glyc- glycogen into the uh, systemics uh, system- in the blood in order to maintain glucose levels so you fill up the glycogen as well and then your, all your tanks are basically full when you start the exercise Now, it makes it possible that you don't need any carbohydrates during the exercise. But of course, if you have like seven hours of cycling or whatever, you are going to need additional carbohydrates being ingested during the exercise. And that's uh, why people invented sports drinks and uh, and gels and all of that stuff.
0: I see. So if you're doing high-intensity exercise for an extended period of time where there's a risk of using up all of your glycogen stores, you definitely want uh, to eat carbohydrates beforehand. So, exactly. so if you're, yeah, so if you're doing the Tour de France or you're just working out really, really hard, you want to eat a high carb meal the night before and probably get some carbohydrates a couple hours or so before your exercise. And if you do that, you'll have enough fuel to maintain that high intensity. and if you don't have enough, well nothing catastrophic will happen, you just won't be able to perform at like peak level.
1: Correct. Or if you still have to try and you get depleted, you might actually get hypoglycemic, and then what people call you hit the wall and you have to basically stop cycling because you're exhausted. But in in general, it just means you have to titrate down your 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 intensity so you can't keep up with the pack anymore.
0: I see. I see. And is there. You know, does high intensity, is that just defined by, you know, the amount of fuel you're burning, period? Or does it additionally
1: matter in some
0: way whether you're doing like uh, an endurance type of exercise versus weightlifting yeah. or something like very, that?
1: Very, very good, very good question. So, um, so I'm basically talking about moderate to high intensity exercise because, I mean, you can't keep up high intensity exercise for seven hours. So it completely depends on your definition of moderate to high. But moderate to high intensity exercise, so basically competitive uh, intensity, Um, but also intermittent type exercise uh, activities like playing soccer, for example, uh, where you do repeated sprints, basically, or basketball or whatever. That is also a way to really go through your glycogen stores very rapidly, even though it's not continuous exercise, because especially the high intensity exercise also uses a lot of the carbohydrates, so even... uh, 90 minutes, uh, soccer game will actually uh, cause a lot of depletion of your, your glycogen stores. So it's the same for those kind of activities.
0: And is there a difference between like the different types of carbohydrates in terms of how quickly they can be used for energy or any, any other considerations? So, you know, glucose versus fructose, um, you know, the carbs that you're going to find in like a pasta or something like that.
1: Yeah. So, um, so basically all carbohydrates, um, are generally used as long as they're digestible. But especially for during exercise and also for post exercise repletion of your glycogen stores, they typically, uh, they typically use high glycemic foods. So rapidly digestible, easily available. Um, and in those cases, uh, if you took, if you look at, for example, gels or sports drinks for during exercise, it's often composed of, uh, glucose, uh, maltose, which is basically two, two glucose molecules together or longer, longer chains of glucose, glucose polymers like maltodextrin, uh, sometimes with fructose, uh, or sucrose. Sucrose is what we find in uh, our sugar cubes, which is basically a, a disaccharide. Or, uh, it's, so it's glucose and fructose coupled together. That's sucrose. That's the sugar that we, we know uh, from the sugar cubes or the sugar that we put in our coffee. All of those sources are basically used and uh, can be used and are rapidly uh, digestible, le- 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 rapidly available and rapidly oxidized there seem to be limitations to the amount of carbohydrates uh, that you can ingest during exercise that becomes available in circulation and can be used for oxidation. And it's typically for glucose that's around 60 uh, 60 to 70 grams per hour. So 1 to 1.1 grams uh, of oxidation, grams per minute that are being oxidized. So you don't need to ingest more than 60 to 70 grams However, um, a while ago, people also found out that very, the top athletes can actually consume up to 90 grams uh, per hour and actually uh, oxidize it. But only if they combine that with fructose. Uh, Now they have the popular term of multiple transportable carbohydrates, which basically says that the limitations in glucose is the uptake in the intestine. And fructose follows a different pathway. So, if you combine glucose and fructose, uh, basically the top athletes can go up to 90 grams per hour. Uh, most of our more mere mortals uh, won't be, will uh, never get above the 60 grams per hour, probably. Um, but that is the, basically the limitation that you have. So, it's not an, uh, a limitless amount of carbohydrates that you can supply, even if you have the right carbohydrate source during exercise. I see. So, for high intensity exercise,
0: uh, like a sports drink that has sugar in it, like Gatorade or something, that that actually is a good choice.
1: Uh, depends on on uh, what your aim is. If your aim is to uh, to maintain moderate to high intensity exercise for a prolonged period, then sports drinks can uh, prolong uh, performance and uh, reduce fatigue. Um, of course, the question is: What is your aim of your exercise? Is your exercise to perform maximally, or is it to burn fat, or to look better, or is it for health perspectives? Uh, uh, that is always the discussion. Of course, I mean, uh, you know how how it how it goes. Uh, um, I might still be able to lose about ten kilograms of excess fat that I have on my body, but I still buy a buy a, a racing bike that is uh, under ten kilograms. Um, so uh, a lot of people are still trying to optimize performance, even though uh, we're not professional athletes and we're not—we uh, don't have to pay our mortgage uh, from our sports performance. So it completely depends uh, if you want to maximize performance for some reason, uh, and it's very uh, uh, yeah special to you. Then uh, then sports drinks can improve your performance. I see, but if you're the average
0: person who's probably uh, not performing at an elite level, and your goal is to lose weight that could end up being counterproductive
1: yeah i mean you've seen uh, you you i assume that you've gone to see a gym inside and you see people sitting on uh, one of those benches where you can do ab crunches and they sit there for about an hour they drink uh, <laughs> one, of, one of those sports drinks and you can actually easily tell. Cal- you don't need to calculate it to actually tell them that they actually ingested more calories than they burned on that uh, on that bench
0: I see that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense actually. <laughs> um so switching gears a little bit talking about things like protein physiology and protein supplementation and stuff like that. So if you're doing um resistance training and your goal is to build or maintain muscle mass, that's that's the context I want to think in here. Um one of the big areas that you just hear a lot about these days is uh plant-versus-animal-based foods and diets and plant-versus-animal-based proteins. Can you start off by talking a little bit about, are are there like fundamental differences between animal and plant proteins in terms of their structure and how the body actually like digests them?
1: Yeah, I would love going there, but I think we need to take one step back uh, to first understand what proteins are, why we need them. Uh Um, and whether supplementation has a benefit and then go towards the efficacy of different proteins and their their differences in quality, if you may. So um, our body is constantly um, breaking down proteins and building them up. Now, later on, we can discuss other organs, uh, but we'll stick to the muscle for now. Your muscle has a turnover rate of 1% to 2% per day. That means that... your muscle, your protein, which is your muscle, is constantly being broken down and built up again. That is amazing because that means in 1% to 2% per day, that means in 50 to 100 days, you have completely remodeled your muscle. Hmm. So this is a misconception that a lot of people have because they think the muscle that they have, that they always have that muscle. No, it's constantly being refurbished. So it's not like you lose your muscle and you build up your muscle. No, your muscle is constantly refurbished, just like a house. The house is still there. But everything has been changed over the years. So you're constantly refurbishing your muscle. And that is convenient. We call that muscle plasticity. Uh, I saw that you also invited a lot of neuroscientists who who will talk about brain plasticity or neuroplasticity. But you have also something like like muscle plasticity. Now, um, that is very convenient. So our muscle adapts to our use of the muscle because it's very inefficient to walk, walk around with muscle that you don't need and you can easily see that if you picture yourself i always have these pictures for for presentations uh, and on the left i always show um, uh, a famous uh, endurance athlete or a, tr- a cyclist or a triathlete and on the other side a bodybuilder now picture the uh, the upper body of a professional uh, endurance athlete and that of a of a bodybuilder huge phenotypic difference i mean the the small guy versus the huge guy um, their muscle has adapted to that type of exercise. And so that's convenient. If you start a different, different, uh, different, um, I don't know, different sports and you start doing resistance training, you'll build up muscle. If you start going running a marathon, you'll actually start looking more like a marathon runner. So your muscle adapts. The opposite is also true. It's also, I mean, that is a positive point. We call it muscle reconditioning, but you also are at high risk of deconditioning. And that's when we lose the anabolic stimuli to maintain muscle, we actually can lose muscle very rapidly when we stop eating, when we become immobilized. Uh, remember, if you might have broken a leg or um, um, or an arm and you've been in a cast or you were in bed for a few days with the flu or with COVID, you see rapid muscle loss. And only when you see that, you realize that that, that turnover rate of 1% to 2% per day is actually true. And so muscle needs to be stimulated to grow constantly in order to maintain the muscle that you have, both from a mass perspective, but also functionality and quality. And so this is something that we do every day because we get these stimuli every day. And that sounds very tiring, but the stimuli we have every day, it's it's physical activity and and food intake. And so physical activity is one factor. The other factor is simply food intake. If you ingest, Uh, protein in the form of a meal, you will actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis directly. Following digestion of your protein, the amino acids appear in the circulation, they actually at some point uh, reach the muscle, and they directly stimulate the muscle to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. It's really awesome to see this. And this, of course, has been known in research for a long time. Uh, We've done some work to actually show this and make it even more uh, clear to people what is really happening. And I'll, I'll come to that later. But simply eating stimulates muscle protein synthesis. So it's an important factor to maintaining muscle.
0: Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's why uh, when people are bulking up, they they simply just eat more protein.
1: Yes, but it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that more protein is actually building more muscle. Because if that would be so, then I could basically sit here and gulp away uh, protein supplements or eat tremendous amounts of eggs and meat and... And I would be 300 kilograms of uh, fat-free mass by the end of the year. Doesn't work like that. So it's a it's a it's a much more difficult, uh, complex uh, system where the interaction between physical activity and food intake are, are interplay. What is really interesting to see if you you perform physical activity and you eat afterwards, your capacity to increase muscle protein synthesis is actually increased. So in other words, physical activity makes your muscle more sensitive to the anabolic response to food intake. So these mm. two factors have synergy. And that's why there's a lot of discussion or there's a lot of interest in combining physical activity with uh protein intake because they actually benefit each other. I see. So that
0: that would that would imply that the timing is also crucial here that you know if 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 uh physical activity resistant training is priming your body to be more sensitive to its anabolic response to uh, food ingestion, protein ingestion, then when you eat relative to when you work out would seem to be very important. Do we know much about sort of what the optimal timing is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that my lab is particularly interested in. So most of the studies, we basically per- uh, perform exercise or not exercise, and then we eat something in the morning and then respond uh, and then see the response in the next few hours using stabilized traces tracers and stuff like that. But how one meal affects the other meal and the other meal, et cetera, we don't know. Um We've worked around, so if every meal, we now believe that basically every meal should have enough protein to get a nice anabolic response so that on a 24 or 48 hour level, you basically have best muscle maintenance. So that means every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner should, should provide enough protein. Now, we also have an issue with a lot of patients uh, that, for example, lose a lot of muscle during a period where they can't eat a lot. And so we try to add another meal in the day, which is similar to what a lot of athletes do as well, because most athletes eat more than, four, than three times a day. So to increase the number of anabolic points throughout the day, and we started doing that prior to sleep. And the first study we did, which was pretty cool, is we actually provided people uh, with protein while they were sleeping. So we had a bunch of older people that were willing to uh, to participate in these studies. So what we would do is actually would take a muscle biopsy from the leg, then start a tracer infusion overnight and provide them with intrinsically labeled protein at two o'clock while they were sleeping via a nasogastric tube. And then actually we could, uh, by taking blood samples on a retractable line, so they wouldn't wake up. And then I would wake them up in the morning with a muscle biopsy, basically. <laughs> um, it's amazing that these guys actually sign up for it. It's really awesome to work with these people. And so what we could see in that study, and this is really a proof of principle study, because we wanted to know whether the gut, so the, the gastrointestinal tract, is capable of digesting protein, whether those protein-derived amino acids are released in the circulation, and whether they are incorporated into muscle and stimulating muscle protein synthesis. Now, that all worked. So even if you provide that protein in the gut uh, at at two o'clock at night while they're sleeping, you see that next it's nicely digested and absorbed and stimulates muscle protein synthesis during sleep. So this is a strategy that you can use to um, prevent or attenuate muscle loss in patients at higher risk of losing muscle over a certain period of time. Now, strangely enough, when we published that study for, for the first time, right, because afterwards we've done it again in other in, in, in other settings, is we got a lot of calls from coaches uh, that were actually reading those that literature, I was surprised by that, asking asking me where they could get those nasogastric tubes. Now, that was scary because uh they didn't get that this was a proof of principle principle study, just showing that your gut functions at night and that you can have muscle protein synthesis uh, during sleep. But of course, the easy uh, translation of this research is simply that you can have a protein-rich snack before you go to bed. So between your evening dinner and going to bed. And that is an issue in a lot of hospitals also here, is that people get their evening dinner, like five or six o'clock in the evening, and then they they don't ingest any protein for up to the breakfast the next morning. And that's a very long period to be without protein, especially when you're at high risk of losing muscle. So this is basically the proof of principle to suggest that uh, a protein-rich snack in the evening can help you to preserve muscle mass during a period of, of uh, for example, inactivity or reduced food intake or whatever. And of course, it's now also used, and we've also done that. this with, with athletes, recreational athletes, being used uh, by athletes to optimize recovery, uh, for example, during heavy training periods. So, um, for example, most of us, uh, if we exercise, we do this in the evening. And so if you already had your dinner, you, you're exercising later in that evening, it's good to have a protein-rich snack after the training session in order to allow the the adaptive response, the recovery, if you may, uh, during overnight uh, to optimize that and provide sufficient amino acids to support that adaptive response and basically improve the efficiency of your training.
0: Mm -hmm. And does this have anything to do with circadian rhythms and circadian effects of protein synthesis at a cellular level? So in other words, um, what, what part of the sleep-wake wake cycle is most of the protein synthesis occurring? Is it occurring at all times to some extent? Is it concentrated during sleep or during waking?
1: Yeah, the concepts that we uh, basically have, I mean, there's not much stuff done on uh, nightly protein synthesis, is that we believe that all three meals, so basically the three meals throughout the day, will stimulate muscle protein synthesis, reduce protein breakdown, so there's a net positive response, And then during the night, when you're basically depleted of protein, you have a negative uh, uh, protein balance, meaning your protein synthesis is not stimulated and protein oxidation is a bit increased. And those two will keep in balance, so you you maintain your muscle mass in a longer level. Uh, But, however, as we've seen, uh, when you provide some protein prior to sleep, you can actually change that that overnight protein balance by increasing and making it a more positive protein balance.
0: And so the, the advice that I hear most often in terms of uh, sleep and eating is that you should not have a big meal too close to when you go to bed. Um, is that generally good advice in terms of preserving sleep quality? But at the same time, are, are you saying that if you're trying to build and maintain muscle mass that you actually probably do want to have a, a high protein snack at least before bed?
1: Yeah, so um, I don't know what 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 the what what the basic um, the 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 science is on the potential negative effects of a large meal before going to bed because I'm not sure whether they're there. Not saying that they're, that they're not. I wouldn't eat a, a huge meal before going to bed. But um, you know this yourself. Uh, if you go, I'm not sure whether you still have relatives in in Greece. But um, I don't think that you have to suggest that you have dinner at seven o'clock in the evening. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. Exactly. So, uh, in a lot of the Mediterranean countries, I mean, uh, food intake is uh, the, the main meal is actually ingested relatively late at night, and uh, uh, in general, we actually say that the Mediterranean diet is actually healthy. So, I'm I'm not sure that there's any any negative effect there. Um, the only thing that I'm saying, if you eat relatively early, then it uh, you you actually uh, might consider uh, a light protein-rich snack after your training session in the evening to optimize your adaptive response uh, to the exercise. We have actually looked at how it affects your your protein intake the next day, for example, at breakfast. uh, We didn't see an impact there. So people just – because if people then eat less at breakfast, especially in the hospital, it's not – overall, it it doesn't necessarily help. But actually, they, they eat the same thing. So it doesn't necessarily affect either food intake the next day. And for all the sleep parameters that we actually did look at, even though it's not our focus, of course, we didn't see any impairments in in sleep quality. I see. So
0: in summary, it would sound like if you are eating your last meal at a normal time for an American, so let's say 6 p.m., 7 p.m., something like that, you're going to bed a few hours later. If you're trying to build and maintain muscle mass, probably a good idea to have a protein-rich snack. Um, closer to when you go to bed because otherwise you will be going into uh, negative protein balance uh, throughout the night in those few hours,
1: uh, assuming you had a normal meal I mean mm-hmm. if you actually have a ridiculous meal with a huge you mean a huge amount of meat, for example, it might not have any uh, benefits because you're still you're still digesting your food from six o'clock. but with normal meals, yes. So there's two things. It's not only focusing on that protein-rich snack in the evening, but ensuring that every main meal has enough protein. And uh, what we often see is that people hardly uh, consume any protein at uh, breakfast and then uh, relatively uh, little at lunch and then a huge amount at dinner. So uh, at this moment, most of my colleagues and I believe that a good distribution of protein throughout the day is the best, the best option. And that could be like the three main meals, like at least 20, 20 grams of high-quality protein each main meal. And then especially if you're at higher risk of losing muscle or you're trying to build muscle, then a fourth meal uh, if you may uh, prior to sleep. I see. And um,
0: you said high-quality protein there. And uh, I want to talk about that because, you know, when you look at the the nutrition label on food, you know, it just sort of treats protein as protein. Protein is always twenty grams here, twenty grams there, ten grams here, ten grams there. What does protein quality refer to, and and how does that start to become relevant here?
1: Yeah, that's 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 really a cool topic. Um, so, first of all, quality. I mean, there's quality scores on proteins, um, and we always talk about quality. But what is quality? And, and I always tell the students the following if uh, is a, is a certain coat of high quality or not now prob- probably that depends on how you're using if you have a woolen coat and you're standing somewhere in a cold a cold environment out of the wind you think like oh this woolen coat is great but then suddenly when you're standing in the rain and the wind i don't think you'll find your woolen coat to be very uh, high quality you pr- probably prefer a raincoat
0: If you're hearing this, you are listening to the free version of the Mind and Matter podcast. The first part of episodes are freely available to all listeners, and the full episode is available to paid subscribers at mindandmatter.substack.com. Paid subscriptions help sustain the podcast and increase the quantity and quality of the content I produce. However, I don't want anyone to miss out on learning from my guests just because they can't afford a subscription. If you're interested in hearing full premium episodes but can't afford a paid subscription, simply sign up for my free weekly newsletter, send me an email, and I will give you a free paid membership, no questions asked. Paid subscribers enjoy benefits like ad-free episodes, early access, and other subscriber-only content on the Mind & Matter substack. As always, I thank you for your support. No matter how you engage with Mind & Matter, the simplest and most effective way to provide support is to share your favorite episodes with family and friends.